0: Okay, welcome dear listeners to another edition of the Jacobs podcast and firstly I'd just like to start off with an apology. I know there's a lot of listeners out there who've been quite disappointed that we haven't been back on the airwaves in a while and things have been unusually busy with work um, and other priorities as well and we just try to find timings and it hasn't really worked out so sincere apologies to listeners. So this should be episode 35 now of the Jacobs podcast. And uh, joining me today is Jordan Shopoff. Jordan, welcome. G'day, Sean. It's been too long, mate. Great to see you again. Likewise. And um, I understand you've been, well, one of the reasons we haven't been able to um, sort of find or coordinate a timing other than Will being on the other side of the planet is um, you've had some recent news.
1: Yes. um, About eight weeks ago, my wife and I welcomed our first child into the world, a baby girl named Florence. Um, she is actually kind of half participating today. She's on the baby monitor here. Sofa's left me on my own with her, so she might join the conversation at some point. But yeah, we've been pretty busy the last uh, couple of months. And yeah, apologies to, to Will that we couldn't get one of our episodes up.
0: But yeah, it's good to have this chat today. No, absolutely. It's good to have you back. And um, I suppose, yeah, things have been pretty life-changing um, with the new edition
1: yeah it's uh yeah time's become even more scarce. sleep is you know of the essence, so yeah no, it's but it's good um it's funny like all these you know you know all these challenges are coming, but it's there's a a bit inside of me which is like I wish we kind of did this earlier, so
0: get to it sean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, look um at some stage, one step at a time. But yeah. um, walk before you That's run. right. That's right. That's, yeah. um, no, look, I do hear what you're saying, and I, you know, from having some exposure to this with you know my niece and stuff like that, it's um, yeah, one of the things you mentioned is lack of sleep, and you know, lack of time to, I guess, do other things that you were doing. You were a voracious reader um, and listening to the podcasts and absorbing information. That's obviously um, been not put on the back burner, but that time has narrowed significantly to read etc
1: yeah definitely i've had uh yeah i I mean i'm obviously still working during the day but nighttime reading's kind of gone out the window so that's been a bit of a challenge but um maybe at some point i can multitask and read her read florence what i'm reading that'll really put her to sleep so
0: (laughs) i'm sure you figure these things out (laughs) well there are kids versions of economics books i I think so have you already started have you indulged her in, in those yet
1: I might have to start looking into that. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah e-
0: Echo one hundred and one for two year olds <laughs> <laughs> Well, have you been? What have you been reading anyway, recently? That might be a bit interesting for listeners out there.
1: Yeah, readings. Readings. Uh, you know, hard to find time at the moment. But the last book I read was a book called um, the, "The Dando Investor," which is by a guy called. Um, his name's Monish Pabrai. He's a he's a value investor in the in the mould of like uh, Buffett and Munger. You might have actually and-
0: mentioned him. Um, during our last, or oh, the Buffett podcast that we did, oh, so yeah. this is um, the guy that replicates their strategies, and like his basic like existence is to do what they've done or replicate their decisions.
1: His his kind of his you know claim to fame is he describes himself as a shameless cloner, and yeah. he's like, for some reason humans have this aversion to imitating directly things that work. There's this sort of like inbuilt bias uh, against it. Whether it's because of overconfidence or lack of humility or uh, this, you know, belief that we we should be really original, but he's like, um, he's pretty much built his entire business uh, and investing career around directly replicating what Buffett and Munger did. And the first part of that was actually going. He literally took the Buffett biography and took the pages where it has, uh, you know, Buffett's original partnership agreement from the fifties, mm-hmm. and he took it to his lawyer and he says, "Recreate this for me." and I'm going to go run a partnership. And he's pretty much the only guy in the world who's done that. He's literally taken exactly the same model and applied it today. And he's now managing hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's done incredibly well over, like, 20, 30 years, I think. So wow. anyway, he's, he's, his book is kind of – he was so he was born in India, raised in the U.S., and uh, comes from – you know, I don't, his family weren't very well off or anything like that. So he's come from, like, a real, you know, um, uh, you know, Not a hardship story, but, you know, he's he's self-made. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, his writing's writing's not full of any, you know, academic language or anything like that. It's very simple. Uh, It's like, you know, it's like talking to him. And uh, it's just like a series of case studies of things that uh, worked for him, examples of investments that worked, uh, and also kind of little anecdotes about um, investors and entrepreneurs applying this uh, model of risk-taking, which he calls Tando. And it's this idea of uh, uh, low risk, but uh, high return. And it's kind of captures the whole uh, margin of safety idea that we talked about in the Buffett podcast about buying a dollar for 50 cents. Mm. It's like uh, the risk is low and the the payoff could be large. And yeah, anyway, it's it was a good book just because uh, he's becoming one of my heroes. I, I really like the way he goes about it. He's really modest, he's really humble. His, his approach is really cool and uh, you know, it's funny, I even initially discounted him because I was like, all this guy's doing is copying Buffett. I was like, if I want to do that, I can just go and watch Buffett. But Buffett's, you know, he did all this stuff, you know, 50 years ago mm-hmm. and you don't clone him now because he's doing, you know, he's dealing with such big sums. Yeah. But Monish is actually doing it on a small scale. So I realised like, oh, the brilliance is that he's actually cloning Buffett and doing it in a way that suits today. So yeah. my challenge now is to go and try and clone Monish and how he's working. That's kind of the, yeah, the impetus. The so clone, clone
0: of a clone. It's, yeah, cloning, cloning. Yeah. Is there <laughs> anyone doing that in Australia like that you're aware of or is it um, uh, just this guy?
1: Oh, good question. Um, there's a couple of fund managers who probably the most renowned sort of individual uh, investor in Australia at the moment is a guy called John Hempton. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he's quite well known because he's, he's a very successful short seller and short sellers get a lot more attention because they're, you know, they it's much harder to go against the crowd in that sense like there's a general you know bullish bias to the market and you know it that's just the way you know we're optimistic we like taking risks we're gamblers at heart so a short seller is kind of like they're very they you have to be it's much ballsier to go against the crowd that way so he's actually had a very couple of big pay you know big successes on the short side and that's made him quite well known and he's a really good investor and he he's sort of like in the same Buffett and Munger light but he's he doesn't run a partnership the way like Monish is doing. So there's no one really I know in Australia that's doing mm. uh, doing that. One of the things that Monish does, which Buffett did and no one else really does today, is he doesn't charge a management fee. Mm. So most investors, the way they'll run a fund is they'll charge, say, 1%, 1.5% to manage the money, and then they'll take a performance fee on top of that. Mm. And the the reason that Buffett never did that is because it's like, well, why should I earn a, earn money for just holding your assets. He's like, I haven't even done anything. I've just walked in the door and I get one and a half percent of everything you give me. Mm. He's like, that's "That's just unfair. So he's like, he ran his partnership with the idea that he would only make money if the investors made money above a certain hurdle rate. Mm. And uh, Monish has done the same. And there is very few people in the world that actually do that. A very, like, I think you could count it on, you know, like a couple of dozen, so. And
0: I don't know anyone in Australia that doesn't. Yeah. So fees are kind of everywhere in finance, aren't they? And you know, one of the things I was actually reading about the other day was um, like quite shocked to read like with small, um, with sorry, with self-managed super funds, and just how much they take away fees for the financial advice sector or the superannuation advice sector is like in the billions of dollars per year. Um,
1: oh yeah, the super, the super industry is a racket. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's fees Fees being skimmed off everywhere and that's why your hero Jack Bogle is, you know, a true giant of finance because he, he created a way for the average person to access returns without having to pay, you know, fees to people who don't deserve it.
0: Mm. What, what yeah. like, I mean, I guess one of the things that you think about with fees though is that we've got probably like an unusual or unprecedented level of transparency. Like people can, you know, I sense with, you know, shop around, people are consumers, they know, you know, there's fees involved in a lot of different things, but it doesn't sort of seem there's a lot of people moving with their, you know, voting with their feet on this, that people are still sort of happy to pay a fee if it means, you know, just like putting some money towards something to make a problem go away. Um, is that...
1: That's a great That's a great point. And it's a really interesting question because it, you're right. I mean, everyone knows what an index fund is now. It's not like they're a new invention anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to compare fees across different products. And, you know, you can work out pretty quickly. Okay, an index fund is by far the lowest cost option for me. So why doesn't everyone buy an index fund? And I think this kind of comes back to the idea that um, like if you buy an index fund, you're going to do average, you're not going to get super rich. You're going to do, you know, you are going to do well over time, but you're not going to shoot the lights out. You're not going to be the next Bill Gates from buying index funds. And I think once people realize that, oh, I'm just going to do average, most people don't want to be average, mm. <laughs> even though they are average. So I think that's why they're willing to kind of venture into these more expensive products. It's kind of like, you know, the lowest cost option is not always what, you know, You know, if you're buying a TV, not everyone wants the cheapest TV. So it's kind of that whole, you know, this is where you get your sort of like identity mm. and it's a bit fashionable. Like, you know, everyone wants to tell their friend that they've got a, you know, a really good hedge fund manager. And he's, you know, he might shoot the lights out, even though yeah. he probably won't. So I think that's kind of why, you know, you know, not we're not always rational, and that that's where it kind of manifests itself.
0: Mm, for sure, because I think you know one of the things too is there's that sort of identity, and I hear what you're saying, side about you know like not wanting the lowest cost thing and and that kind of thing. And I think and there's a lot in even just um, you know, do you even know like I guess we've are fees cheaper now than they have been in the past, or are they still, like, as a total sort of percentage of things? Like, is there a general kind of, um, like, have you got any sort of general stats or thoughts on how fees expanded over time, or have they, stayed relatively the same?
1: Yeah, so it's that's a very timely question, because uh, I think it was in the, within the last couple of weeks, the amount of money being managed uh, by index funds, I think this is just in the United oh, yeah, States... Yeah amount of money being managed by index funds past the amount of money being managed by active managers for the first time in history mm-hmm. so that like it is it is really like just kind of like how software is eating the business world uh, index funds are eating the financial world they're just and uh, like the the boom in passive management is uh, a way as they call it is um it's putting pressure on fees So fees are coming down a lot of hedge fund managers Uh, going out of business Mm. so it's really yeah it is like a a huge tide that's sweeping sweeping industry
0: are there threats Um, to the to like you know i think index funds obviously popping their head up a lot more there's risk in that in terms of exposure and you know like what are some of the threats to an index fund then yeah
1: oh good good question because there's a um it's like there's a saying that it's like it's not the bad ideas that get you into trouble it's the good ideas taken too far and Indexing can be taken too far as well. It's like if you think you take this to an extreme and you say okay Everyone uses index funds. What does that look like it, in that in that situation? It means there's no one trying to figure out the value of assets and you need some sort of price discovery in the market So if you if everyone was just buying an index, then there's just capital sloshing around and it's not you know you the, the passive investor needs is riding sort of like is free riding on the active investor to figure out what something's worth and they benefit from those players in the market so if you only had everyone indexing the, it would it wouldn't yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't work so at the moment if like if too many people end up that way that's kind of a sign of you know um excess optimism potentially you know a reflection of maybe a bubble type situation so that's 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 when it's taken too far yeah
0: okay yeah fair enough
1: but uh, I'm sure you don't want to talk all finance this podcast. So let me let me ask you what you've been reading. Oh no,
0: they're probably in a very different. Ta- no, that's it's fascinating stuff, Jordan. I think um, you know. Well, so look to what I've been looking at recently. I just finished a good book by a guy called Larry Alex Taunton um, on Christopher Hitchens. So the title oh, yeah. was um, "The Faith of Christopher Hitchens," and I just found Hitch, um, you know, is now um, passed away in 2011 um like probably one of the first like polemicists i'd read um you know he's a renowned atheist but he sort of started his political journey on the left and um you know was known for his fierce kind of takedowns of anyone from mother Teresa to bill clinton to Mm. um to um kissinger and um you know towards the end of his career a pretty sort of renowned or very renowned atheist and um, yes the title sort of caught my eye the faith of Christopher Hitchens so Taunton was his debating opponent and um, they'd gone on a few different um, sort of circuits together debating each other and um, they'd got to know each other pretty well and you know Taunton's sort of thesis is that he had um, you know quite a side to him that wasn't so uh, militant and they were kind of um I guess spiritual elements to um Hitchens's behaviour and some of his beliefs that he hadn't quite computed yet, so it was kind of um you know it wasn't like a um this sort of deathbed like turn to to God that you know some people have thought that Hitchens sort of did, but I think that um it was really just an interesting perspective on someone who I really looked up to when I started sort of reading a lot more and getting into current affairs. Um, when I was in my sort of starting at university, so yeah, it was a great. I, I found that a quite an interesting read, and just a very well written um, kind of biography as well. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of an interesting one. And I, so yeah, I've I've kind of mixed it up a bit. I've been reading a lot of different different things. Um, been diving into JFK a little bit and some of his speeches, oh, which yeah. I found quite yeah. interesting. Um, there's a great like what kicked it off was. Um, a, a great sort of montage of some of his best speeches and um, that's available on YouTube. And I sort of, you know, there were a few that jumped out to me, like his 61 address. We
1: choose to go to the
0: moon. <laughs> well, that's right. And um, they do yeah. these things because they're not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, us, what not either your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, all these sorts of, you know, those are the, the big takeaways, but I was kind of looking for other speeches um, where, you know, he's made some really knockout points and, So the JFK Library has just been a fascinating read to me um, recently um, because, like, it's got so many good speeches of um, things he's done, like things he he, um, spoke of at the time on, like, a lot of different issues. And I think he was kind of an interesting character in the sense that he was, you know, obviously a Democrat and very much a progressive politician, but I think probably today you'd see him very much in, you know, as someone who was probably like an old school kind of um, labor person or, you know, someone who had sort of quite very traditional beliefs, but was quite a progressive thinker. And I just sort of sense that there's not a lot of those people that I sort of see around. So I think like a lot of conservative heads or a lot of people in the center right would nod a lot at what some of the stuff that he, you know, that JFK spoke about. Um, But yeah, yeah, and probably different to the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a line of his uh, that I think it's quite a bit about, you know, rising tide, lift all boats. That was his line, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, and even, um, that's right, and even, um, like, what he was, he spoke a lot about tax cuts, you know, like, and not yes. helping a certain part of um, America, but helping the economy, which helped Americans. And so, like, I guess he was a very sort of, you know, um, Arthur Laffer, who's someone you know, I kind of, you know, it's very, the Laffer curve, and we probably need to talk about that at some stage on the podcast, but, you know, the the basic concept of lower taxes stimulating the economy, which I think sort of makes a lot of common sense, and a lot of economists will sort of agree and disagree about that, but I think any sort of common sense person would say that that's, you know, it kind of, um, it makes a great deal of sense in terms of stimulating, you know, business activity, and creating jobs, and investment, and opportunities, and, commerce um but yeah that jfk was really a proponent of that sort of way of thinking and that economic um approach and that fiscal approach yeah so there's a he's quite an interesting character but i'm certainly no jfk expert but um yeah just a few things sort of jumped out to me about reading some of his things
1: yeah um i've actually got his uh a biography about him it's called an unfinished life which has been collecting dust on my bookshelf for a few
0: years i have i yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: beneath the dust you saw yeah, yeah. anyway so I've, I've been very interested to, uh, to read more about him as well so um, I'd be keen to um, maybe I can lend you that book actually yeah. and then you can tell me how to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. but but before we get to JFK, I want to ask you a question about kitchens sure. is uh, yeah, I remember my my brother sent me a video of him. it was a uh, this sort of like roundtable discussion with uh, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harrison, one other person. And the, that discussion ended up with the four of them being labelled the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. They're all like you know, the most prominent atheists in the world at the time. And uh, but he, he, and I think Hitchens during the video was just sitting there smoking, yeah. <laughs> which you wouldn't, wouldn't really see the, these days. Um, but he, he was like – I've never really understood where he kind of sits. Not that you want to just pigeonhole someone on the left or right or anything, but it sounds like he actually, you know, towards the end of his life, he was um, – you know, the the left got quite annoyed with him because he was in favour of the war in Iraq. If I'm yes, that's right. right, and he, so he, what was his sort of like core framework or you know uh, political foundations? Where where yeah. did where did he fit so fit in? Think,
0: look, he was he was you know a Trotsky, like a socialist from you know like in his early like you know seventies, eighties, and I guess he kind yep. of stayed in that space of being completely against fascism and totalitarianism. That's why he had a sort of very strong dislike of Islam, sure. you know, among all religions, but of because of its, um, you know, how he assessed its that streak to it, plus yeah. you know regimes like North Korea, um, Iran, and of course um, you know Saddam Hussein's um, Iraq, and you know he he was sort of one of these people that I think he saw a lot of people in the same camp as him, um, kind of not. You know move away from that criticism of you know like kind of he, he i remember this this famous sort of line that he mentioned about sure you know you know just george, you know saddam Hussein's a bad guy but george bush is even worse and you know like that sort of stuff would drive him up the wall and you know i think yeah. a lot of people again on his side of politics he'd say had sort of lost sight of that sort of george orwell style like knowing what fascism looks like and wanting to take it down at every chance that you can that you have and that's why he sort of just famously came out on the sort of neocon side of favoring regime change and i found that's probably one of the big things that got me onto hitchens was he was a very articulate supporter of the of the war um, um invasion in in three and you know post 9 11 this sort of changed security landscape of you know a world you know, where we couldn't rely on strongmen or dictators anymore um, providing order because they, they couldn't, um, it led to 9-11. And, um, yeah, so I kind of, that, uh, that's what really appealed to me about him, that, you know, he's very, very able to articulate a very unpopular po- um, position. And this was, I remember reading about in 2006, so at the height of sort of the insurgency with a lot of American deaths, and was becoming really difficult for the U.S. to stay and allies to stay in Iraq. But he was a very sort of passionate supporter of, and again, articulate, kind of fierce supporter of, of staying the course. And I, that's what really appealed to me when I, I read about him.
1: Yeah. Um, what about um, just with JFK? Um, I know you only read a couple of speeches, but was there anything in there that uh, really surprised you or sort of? In the sense they're like, oh, I'm surprised JFK had these views or
0: did it, did he change your mind on anything? Probably the most interesting thing was when he gave a short speech, I think it was early 60s, but I'll drop it in the show notes, um, he, about why I'm a Democrat, and one of the things that he starts out the speech with, he goes, um, you know, most people, you know, are just their, their political views are from birth. So, you know, like 99% of people... Uh, actually just follow the v- same voting patterns as their parents. And, um, you know, that that was kind of like, oh, I, they got me thinking, I was like, is that really the case? Do, are we like that these days? And, of course, there'd be stats on it, and I haven't really, but I think anecdotally it's not entirely where I kind of see things. I think things have changed. I think, wasn't it?
1: Your parents make like, screens, do they? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if, if, yeah, it's like a complete 180. Yeah. Um, so, it, but look, I think it's interesting because I think I was going to look this up, but Schumpeter said something like this that in the, that great econ talk with Jonah Goldberg and Russ Roberts, and um, Goldberg touches on this, and he talks about it in his his book about you know the economist Schumpeter said that we what happens is like you reach a level of affluence in society, and you know the children of bankers, of lawyers, of you know pe- of business people don't turn into that themselves. They take on, you know, they want to be artists or, um, you know, polemicists or academics. So it's kind of like, and you can really, I think, if you put that lens on things now, you can really see that, you know, there's a lot of people I know who don't follow that. I think this is just totally anecdotal, but I mean, most of the people I know who, I guess, who are very progressive in their politics don't tend to have um, progressive parents.
1: Yeah, um, I've heard some people say that a lot of this stuff is cyclical, kind of what you're referring to there, like with the generational change. Like I remember reading about a lot of the um, uh, kind of like a lot of the foundations in the US, like the Ford Foundation or stuff like that, have got very progressive mandates today. But if you read about the original, um, you know, business titans and their views, it was a complete 180. And it's kind of – I think a lot of them would be rolling in their graves if they knew what their descendants were doing with the money that they built up. So it's – yeah, I think – there's uh, uh, kind of like yeah what well, you were inferring there about the affluence and how this this goes through goes through waves. So yeah, um, actually on JFK again, the um, one person I wanted to read more about is his is his old man um, Joseph Kennedy. There's a book uh, called The Patriarch, uh, which is yeah a biography about about his life because he's he's quite an interesting figure in the sense that he was a he was successful in finance and business. He had his own political career, which went to shit because of um, Munich. I think he was involved with Munich. Is that right? Like the appeasement of Hitler? Oh,
0: yes. I think. Yeah. Um, well, you know, he was an enthusiastic supporter of... Um, of, of Yeah, that's right. And um, thought Hitler was, you know, like, this is a guy that we needed to do a deal with. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so apparently... Because apparently he had ambitions to be president and that killed it. And... Uh, um, yeah, then there was the you know allegations of links with the the mob back in uh, Boston and stuff like that. So, yeah, he seems uh, he seems like a very key figure in the Kennedys rise to um, you know rise to its status and everything. So, yeah. I don't know much about much else about him. Or are you interested in him? Oh,
0: no, only the like sort of what you've said. I remember actually reading about this and Boris Johnson's um, really really neat biography of Churchill, and he does touch on this as well. Like you know, it's just one of the. Th- the things that were kind of bearing down on, um, or just like in ter- not on Churchill specifically, but on the events at the time, um, you know, when you had the ambassador from America saying like, let's make a deal, like let's cut a deal. It was, you know, like it It obviously, you know, like just shows how split things were and how much like emphasis there was. And, and I think like as, as well, how much of, you know, on the wrong side of history JFK's father was. Yeah.
1: Um, speaking of Boris Johnson, I don't know if we've talked about the new British Prime Minister before. No, um, well, it's been that ha-
0: long since we've had an episode, so um, yeah. probably, you know, John Major was still Prime Minister when we <laughs> <laughs> last did.
1: Um, so the British, the British Donald Trump. How how do you? Um, what is your read on the latest on the new PM? Is he? I know that Churchill's his hero. Is he really? Uh, you know, in a similar mould to the great man.
0: Well, I think. This just sort of illustrates the challenges of the time, like, and how different things have become since, you know, like we're talking about a political, you know, uh, basically a contract or an agreement and, you know, standing the course and not having a deal um, versus, you know, literally spilling blood. And so there's the, the context is so different and um, you know or sending people you know young men and women into harm's way the contexts are totally different but it's quite clear that he sees this and a lot of other serious people see this as the key moment of the time Um, you know of of, uh, withdrawing from the eu is the supreme geopolitical challenge of our age and so i think when serious people well i think as serious say that then it's kind of, um, you know, it really is all on the line, and it just, but it just illustrates how different the challenges are of, you know, facing down Nazi Germany or, um, you know, trying to get out of, you know, run from Brussels. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, let's, I think that's an important context sort of, um, you know, framer. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think it's just, it, I think, you know, you see polls that say, you know, he's more popular than he than he has ever been. Um, you know, you look at the sort of pressures that about. Uh, the, the, I think what is very ill-disciplined from the from a lot of UK MPs um, this incapacity to deliver on what people have wanted over years now, um, and just the chaos of you know people. You know, I, and I think there's a the contrast here of you know the utility of Australian politics that just shows that if a decision's made. We get things done quite quickly and efficiently and we do have that sort of element of discipline and i think that that is certainly lacking in uk politics right now um and i think you know obviously mps are terrified of going to an election because it might you know it'll obviously expose a lot of lot of mps on both sides of an incapacity to deliver so i think yeah it he is um to sort of loop back around to your question um he he's got enough of history and, you know, he's obviously a very smart and capable um, person um, to know that, you know, what's on the line here and to, I think, act with the same, or be inspired by a similar resolve. So um, we'll see. What about you, Jordan?
1: He seems, um, I don't know that much about him, but he does seem to have the same um, sort of uh, level of regard in the media as, As Trump does it's kind of he's he's very underrated in the sense that I think people Depict him as a bit of a clown and a buffoon and doesn't know what he's doing and uh, you know Kind of the same way that people depict Trump and I think I mean sure you, you Trump obviously has a lot less decorum in the way He goes about things, but these people don't get to these positions on pure luck like there is some There is some skill and you know some you know you know, there's there's a level of sophistication about what they're doing, and I think just being underrated in that way gives them a bit of an edge. I think, you know, o- Obama had the complete opposite. Everyone thought he was going to, you know, change the world, save 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 everyone. It's kind of like going in with that type of expectation is always going to make it harder for you. And I think just the the that that little bit of uh, uh, that might give him an advantage. I don't know how, but yeah, I think he he he'll, he'll do okay. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I think that. You know like if you read any of his stuff that you know he's got a great intellect on him that doesn't sort of it kind of betrays his public persona but he's written a lot on you know greek and roman history and again on churchill a very very good book um and yeah i think that he's a lot more shrewd and and wise and aware of what's at stake here than people might give him um but yeah i think it's a it's a very tricky time like um again, to sort of draw it back to Australian politics, I think that when you've got such, um, I guess, ill discipline from members of your own party and an incapacity to... You know, the UK Parliament is huge, of course, but, you know, you'd never have this many MPs in the Australian context completely out of kilter with... Um, yeah. So I kind of... I think it does expose a bit of an Australian exceptionalism here, and especially, you know, from where we've drawn our systems and from um we're kind of a the golden child in that respect
1: i don't i don't mind the whole um you know uh disarray in the party and you know you know a bit of commotion or chaos in the party room for me it's like you know because what's the alternative you can you know we can look over at uh you know the chinese communist party and there's no dissent there and everything gets a al- everyone gets along you know very well and everything's very orderly but that that little bit of disorderliness and and uh, uh debate within a party i think is actually quite healthy i like that mm. um Speaking of that, a shout out to the Chinese Communist Party for their 70th birthday. Big party they had. It was. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: See, I did not know that, but um, oh, I did only. But it was only made aware on on Facebook.
1: Yeah, I guess for the people of Hong Kong, we had this not another 70 years. But uh, yeah, yeah. did you see the big parade on TV?
0: No, I didn't. But I imagine they would have turned on all the bells and whistles.
1: Yeah, they had their big nukes parading through. It looked like something out of North Korea. Actually, it was it was uh, it was strange. It was like, why is this still happening today? And then I, I didn't realize that a lot of foreign diplomats were actually invited to the to the parade. And I was like, that's kind of isn't that weird? It's like the Australian you know government officials are sitting there watching ballistic missiles being paraded in front of them. It'd be kind of like if I invited you over for dinner and showed you my knife collection. <laughs> I was like, why, why, why would you do
0: that? I'm like, I'll pick this one. <laughs> yeah, I could kill you with this
1: knife or this knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: very um, very bizarre. And I, I think the the commentary around Hong Kong's quite interesting in terms of. Well, it doesn't seem to be getting much traction, and especially from the elements that you think would be talking about democracy, freedom, human rights. Um, there's only a sort of very close quarter, you know, like group of people that I can see. Trying to raise the flag on this issue and it's getting not a lot of traction in the spaces where you'd expect a lot of people to to be um advocating
1: yeah it's getting a lot of traction in the business world actually i mean a lot of the finance media that i watch um there's a lot of i mean because hong kong's a financial Mm -hmm. center there's i mean there's a lot of wealthy people and you know uh, financial firms in hong kong and it's I don't know if you know this, but the Hong Kong dollar is actually pegged to the U.S. currency, not the Chinese. Did you know that? No. So they, even though they're within China, they actually have U.S. monetary policy, and that kind of that dichotomy makes it a sort of like a bit of a bellwether as not only for U.S.-China relations, but for what's going on in the financial world. So there's a lot of uh, you know interesting uh, arguments going around from hedge funds about shorting the shorting the the Hong Kong dollar, and you know tied in with the. The, the Chinese currency, so it, yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting spot. I don't quite understand a lot of what what's what's happening, but yeah, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely front and center in, in the finance yeah, world. Yeah,
0: that's super interesting. I didn't didn't know that. I think um, you know, like I think it was always going to be a very challenging issue for the Chinese, you know, and it, it just sort of I think it kind of shows that um, you know, I, I think every sort of tactic will be played here where. You know, you've heard about, um, you know, the Chinese government putting belligerence um, in amongst the protesters to exacerbate, you know, issues and problems. And, to, um, you know, like so I think every sort of tactic will be imp- deployed here. And I don't think the Chinese government will obviously back down on a lot of these things. Um, so, yeah, it, it's an interesting space. And I think it was always going to be a... a um, it's not a powder keg but one of these nagging ongoing issues when you've got a microcosm um you know that's under completely different governance regime like essentially western governance regime folding into over time um a one-party state it's um not going to be a smooth transition
1: Uh, (laughs) um Maybe moving to domestic events. I was going to ask you just you know following up with an email you sent me a couple of weeks ago about uh, Australian the Australian banks. Um, one big political talking point this week was that the Reserve Bank dropped dropped interest rates again, and uh, it you know proceeded with a bit of a round of bank bashing from Scomo and Freidenberg about the banks not passing on the interest rate cut to to uh, you know to borrowers. Do you have a read on? like what are your feelings about uh you know the politicians bashing banks is is this uh is this you know is this liberal party philosophy at work or is this something else oh look
0: i think um everyone enjoys having uh you know a dig at the banks um but you know we we know that they provide capital at great risk um, they allow you know like You know, they when you actually look and break down what banks do, that there's a lot of lot of good things that they do on the whole. Um, And I think, you know, politically, there's probably a bit of mileage in in um, sort of tearing strips off them when you can. Uh, What are your thoughts, Jordan?
1: Well, I I find it a bit of a bizarre debate. For one, I think it's I think politicians shouldn't be in the business of telling companies how to how to work. And the fact that they are in there tells me that. The banks have really not private enterprises; they're more like quasi-state-owned businesses, even though they're, you know, they've got private shareholders and, um, you know, they they have their own management teams and everything like that. I think the level of regulation and the lack of competition in the sector makes it more like a government a government-run sector. So, but putting that mm-hmm. aside, one thing that makes sense to me is, I mean, okay, if I asked you who is the customer of a bank, what would you say?
0: Um- I would say, you know, just think about your average mortgage holder. I'd say that would be a very, like, a prototypical customer of a bank.
1: Yeah, and see, that's where I'd say you're wrong because the Ooh, customer of a bank... Snap. Yeah, <laughs> I would say the customer of a bank is not the, not the borrower. It is the lender to the bank. So as in it's the deposit holder. Right. So just to kind of yeah. make, make the point a bit better, if, say, you know, we were talking about fund managers before. Yeah. The customer of an of a fund manager say you went to you know magellan or you went to our mate monish and said oh monish i want you to manage my money for for me and he'll go yeah that's fine you can pay me this fee and then uh you know you, and hopefully i'll get this return for you but his customer is the person giving him the money to invest it's the same with the bank the customer of the bank is the person who loans them the money to go and invest mm-hmm. and the way they invest it is mainly in mortgages mm-hmm. and it's because most of the you know the customers that they have the fee structure is around you know a set interest rate whether it's your return deposit rate yeah. or otherwise they you know it's in it's in a bond but these financial institutions their customers are the ones that are giving them the money to invest and the the product is the mortgage the mortgage so i think it's strange because you know australian homeowners think that think that they're the customer of the bank like no you're the product you personally are the product you're being you're being shopped around the banks are competing for you so they can you know pass on returns to their customers which is the term deposit holder the retiree and uh you know the foreign the foreign you know institution or whatever who's you know got the got cba bonds or whatever so yeah that that doesn't
0: add up to no but it's an interesting way to look at it because i get what you mean it's sort of like a good anecdote might be you know the the customer of a bank is not the person on the other side of the teller, you know, like where it's the person behind the counter who's giving money to the teller.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep.
0: Gotcha. So um, with the Royal Commish, I know we've been meaning to do a bit of a debrief on that, but um, that was, I guess, not bank bashing season, but um, you know, what were the big takeaways there that you, sort of have seen and has you know like it's kind of slid off the the public radar a bit. There's a lot of underhandedness yeah. and in some respects it exposed a lot of different things, but what are the sort of big takeaways for you now the dust has settled a few months on?
1: Yeah well I think the Royal Commission is like the perfect example of how um this sort of misunderstanding about a bank's role. The bank's role is not to serve the borrower, it is to serve the person that is lending to lending to the bank. And so it's you know it doesn't have that much of an incentive to take care of the person it's lending money to. The, the assumption is that okay, I am lending money to this person to buy a house, and they've done the due diligence to figure out that they one can afford the loan, and two that they're investing it wisely. That's not that's not my job. My job is to make sure um, my term deposit holder gets paid his you know his three percent interest rate or whatever, or more like one percent today. And so the royal commission kind of demonstrated how. Um, the Australian public uh, kind of almost being taken advantage of by the banks because, you know, they need to make product to, you know, they need to, you know, to make loans. And, you know, the part of the change from that is that, okay, the banks now realise they need to be much more conscious of who they're lending money to. And so the, they're going to tighten their standards up. They're going to, you know, avoid the risk of being sued by ASIC or being taken into court. And the consequence of that is that they've tightened up on the, you know, on the credit spigot. And that's been, you know, that's probably been the main talking point in the media. It's like, oh, no, the banks are too tight now. They need to loosen up. They need to let more money out. But it's kind of like, wasn't that the whole point of the Royal Commission? We need to, you know, the banks need to stop lending money to people. So there's this weird dynamic, kind of like the whole bank bashing yeah. for, um, you know, they're not, not passing on interest rates. And they're also being bashed now because they're, you know, they're being too prudent with their lending. So for me, the whole the whole thing's a mess. It's And
0: yeah. one of the interesting things too is that uh, – Banks' profit margins—you know—people talk about banks ripping people off, but are their actual profit margins per dollar loaned very high? Because the stat I have is that they're around only two percent.
1: Yeah, and that sounds—that sounds really small, I and mean, it is compared to a—you know, uh, you know, say like Apple. Apple's margins are more like forty percent. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very different type of business in the financial world. Two percent margin for a bank is actually some of the best in the world the australian banks are i'm not sure if they're the most profitable but they're very close to you know they're very close to the top of the mark i think maybe canada um is the only ones with more profitable banks and that goes back to the what we talk, what i was saying before about the the quasi uh, oligopoly it has and the lack of competition it's like our banks are, are very very profitable by international standards so yeah
0: yeah, yeah. no very
1: it's apples to apples i guess for
0: sure no very interesting stuff and um so, Jordan, looking to the future, um, any things on your horizon, um, books, articles, anything like that you want to look a bit more closely at uh, when you find the time?
1: Yeah, oh, so much. I, actually, I can tell you a little bit about what's perking my interest at the moment. Um, obviously, there's a lot of talk about the trade war um, and I'm not sure if you've seen the like global bond yields uh, are falling dramatically. So everyone's you know worried that, the is going to go into recession. And so the, the usual response of people is, okay, uh, I need to protect my money rather than, you know, try and make make money in, in tough times. Money so under the mattress. Going, yeah, money under the mattress, which is what they're pretty much doing in Europe. Or you go and um, you put it in like the safest asset you can find, which is a government bond, short, you know, long-term government mm-hmm. bond. And so government bonds are very, very popular at the moment as well as, um, defensive stocks that have got you know, safe earnings trajectories like Coca-Cola or McDonald's and stuff like that. So anyway, the, all, the, um, all the geopolitics at the moment is actually creating this really interesting dynamic in the financial world at the moment where people are looking for safe assets and a lot of like, more risky assets like um, cyclical stocks and things which are sort of, sort of like low-quality businesses are really out of favour. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there which I'm sort of sort of looking around at. But it's and it's it's I guess it's interesting in the sense that, you know, geopolitics is kinda of tied in with finance, which it hasn't been for a while. So, you know, obviously we're talking about the the changes in interest rates, but that's having that's having repercussions in financial markets and that's kind of what I'm
0: sort of yeah, following at the moment. What about you? Yeah, fascinating. One of the um I guess probably the the kind of big thing that i've sort of been looking at is kind of this um and want to explore a bit more is is kind of what we touched on with brexit you know like about looking closely at the big challenges of our time and trying to sort of frame you know i think there's a really good piece that um by douglas murray recently in the spectator um about you know we've got lots of challenges on our plate um you know from bond yields through to, you know, identity politics and, um, you know, issues around social cohesion, yet with a capacity to have a detailed discussion, you know, with people especially that we disagree about things is very limited. Um, And, you know, this sort of... This drives this kind of tribalism and these people in different camps. Um, You know, so we've got lots of challenges, but I guess an incapacity to talk in depth about them or to talk, you know, without caveating everything with lots of sensitivities um so that kind of has fascinated me a lot recently and i kind of was thinking about putting together a piece actually on this that looks at you know i guess where brexit is at but just using that again as in the comments i've said on this on the episode about being the like a a real index patient issue of our time and just being i guess an illustrative or symbolic of the sorts of challenges that we i guess we're all facing globally um but at the same time we've got this this pressure about not being able to engage in a complex frank debate about big challenges so I think there's a bit there
1: yeah it makes it makes hard to solve problems when you're not willing to have a civil discussion or one side has decided that the other the other argument is not even worth listening to yeah.
0: it's yeah. yeah and i think you know one of the other books i've read and i totally forgot to mention i should have mentioned it before was ben sass's book um them um and you know he's a guy i think who's He's a US Senator from Nebraska. Um, he's got a very interesting background. He's a historian, like academically trained historian. He's a college president. is um, a turnaround artist. I think he was at McKinsey um, for a few years. And so he's got a really interested sort of blended kind of background. Um, and, you know, he's one of these guys that sort of speaks to the sorts of things that I've just been sort of outlining there. But, um, again, this capacity to have different points of view and obviously he's in the republican side of politics but he's rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way um on his side of politics um for you know not being an avid supporter of of trump or being able to disagree with him on certain things and agree with democrats and others and i think but it sort of goes back to this idea of like having a good civic culture and a really healthy civic culture is you know having lots of people who you know, competing voices about what you sort of said about the disruption in a, a noisy party room, um, but, you know, having that, but then also just basic fundamentals that you agree on. And I think, you know, if you don't have those, then, you know, you're, it's a recipe for disaster.
1: Yeah, and I think um, that that's kind of why we've seen the the rise of this sort of the freedom of speech movement at the moment, because that's the, that's the counterpoint to this identity politics, which a lot of a lot of that stuff is grounded in this idea that we already know the answer, so we don't need to listen to your viewpoint. Man. We're not willing really inter- we're not even willing really to entertain your your argument So the free speech stuff becomes because that's that's what that's what you need for civil discussion, obviously. Unless everyone is free to have an opinion, whether you agree or disagree with it, then you know you're kind of heading towards you know Orwell's totalitarian
0: state. Mm. So, and even yeah. this idea that you know you're like we know the answer, so we don't need to debate or discuss it, and it's like, but your point of view is actually, like, deeply offensive or it might hurt people, you know, like, um, there's, you know, and Jonathan Height's done a lot of this sort of work about, you know, the coddling of, you know, and um, Greg Lukianov as well um, yes, about, right. you know, where... W- you know, this is entirely what we should expect, though, because it's like generations, not generations, but years, of, you know, like years and years of college students in the US and other places as well have grown up in an environment where they haven't been challenged or, you know, they haven't been exposed to rigorous other points of view.
1: Um, my brother sent me an article um, a few months ago about the, just tying this in with the, the civic discussion point, um, he, it, the article was about how, uh, movies today have kind of, um, they, you know, you think about all the Marvel comic movies and stuff like that. There's a clear sort of like good and bad, like where, you know, good and evil type dynamic going on. And he says, the guy was trying to make this point that, you know, movies in the old days, it was much more complicated. He's like, you go and read, you know, the Iliad or, or something like that. It's mm. like, there's good and bad people on both sides. It was never, it was never just, you know, that black and white and life is not like that. It's like good people do bad things and bad people can do good mm. things. And, the kind of like the the modern day Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, you know, superhero and villain is kind of like a, you know, it's not how the world works. But that's kind of what that's sort of how politics is transitioning, especially for those on the progressive side, where it's like, you know, our view is where, you know, we're the superheroes here, and you who have a different point of view, you're the villains. We're not even going to listen to you. It's just that black and mm. white, you know, until we. Yeah, I think I just thought that was an interesting kind of manifestation of, you know, how, how our society is playing out at the moment.
0: Oh, absolutely. That sounds very interesting. And I think, you know, to go back to Taleb and, you know, who have talked about before, but always one of the fascinating comments that he made was that, you know, you got... So we, we often think that, like, things are so different from the past, but, um, you know, that's a very good point about the complications on either side and, you know, how there's no... You know specifically good or bad but you had a lot of disagreement a lot of different things but you know his point i remember about when you know how fragmented news is now and people say well like oh grief you know we're... but actually that's a return to what news used to be like before we had you know mass media and newspapers like how would you get your news from the barbershop and it's like yeah. we've, that's how people get their news now except the barbershop is your algorithm on your phone
1: yeah yeah it's it, like people are complaining that we don't have one you know authoritarian news news source which is going to tell us what's going on in the world no you want different you want lots of the different perspectives you want a you know a competitive arena mm. like your civic discussion you want a competitive arena of news and you want to you want a competitive arena of debate around political issues that civic discussion so yeah.
0: yeah no i completely agree yeah, it's fascinating well jordan i think that might exhaust our time for today and we've kept it pretty sort of informal and done uh, around the world on a few different issues any closing comments anything you want to just throw in or add for listeners
1: um uh, if anyone was wondering what happened to the crying baby in the background we did actually stop for about an hour so i could sort that out we didn't you know she wasn't put down in the <laughs> oh, process <so> she, yes <laughs> that, yeah that
0: was that's there
1: was a there was a brief intermission which you might not pick up on the final edit but yeah everything is okay from my
0: yeah, end <laughs> well, good to hear that um yeah, so brief intermission. That just shows how adaptable we can be on the podcast, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, yeah, I'll try edit it out, but um, no guarantees. <laughs> yeah. And um, um
1: yeah, was, it was great chatting up with you, Sean. That was fun. Yeah,
0: definitely. And likewise, Jordan. And um, good to get back on the airwaves. And um, we've got a really good episode with Will. Or I think there's probably even a few episodes in that that are um in the pipeline on institutions that were. We're really looking forward to like and I'm sure listeners will be as well. Um and yeah, so stay tuned for that. But apologies for the delay. Um it has been quite tricky getting back on the airwaves. Okay, so without any further, thanks very much, Jordan, and thank you, listeners, and until next time. Thanks, mate. And thank you once again, listeners, for tuning in. That was episode thirty-five of the Jacobs podcast. If you have any further ideas for future episodes, Uh, please get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au or if you'd just like to drop me a line and offer your thoughts on the episodes or particularly on what we've discussed in this episode, uh, get in touch with me at the same uh, website, seanjacobs.com.au. Whatever medium you listen to the Jacobs podcast on, please rate or drop a comment in or on whatever platform you listen to or share with your friends as well. That'd be greatly appreciated. Thanks very much and until next time.